Now, so much of my view on Buddhism, Buddhism is, you know, it's a way to torture your mind, and uh, with the, it's a way to torture your mind with the understanding that your mind is already incredibly tortured, and so through Buddhism you can torture your own mind to a point where you just kind of come to terms with torture and by coming to terms with torture it's not really so torturous and it's interesting that you know you know so much of western buddhism for example is focused on you know just directly achieving peace or bliss, finding your bliss. That a lot of it's just about, oh, here's a way to feel good. Here's a way that I'm gonna feel good. I'm gonna do this and it'll make me feel good. Feeling good is good. If, if feeling good is a byproduct of something, I mean, you know, I think what I was saying about torturing yourself, I mean, torturing yourself can make you feel good. Especially when you are knowingly torturing yourself, because I think that's what I'm talking about. You know, Buddhism is a way, it's, it's a form of, I don't want to say self-controlled, but that, that works. It's, it's sort of a self-controlled, self-aware torture you put yourself through. And what makes things less torturous, like, it doesn't make the torture go away, but what makes the torture less torturous is that you realize like how many how many things are torturing you that are outside of your control so when you learn how to control your own torture you know those those torturous things that are outside of your control they, they still can get you but you have you have a different understanding of it you have a different re relationship to it and uh as a byproduct of that, you do end up feeling better. You do end up feeling better. You do. Um, you know, but that's not the point. You can just kind of appreciate feeling better. You can appreciate feeling good. And sometimes you even feel good when things are just haywire. Sometimes it's almost like you can take a step outside of yourself, I think, is, is one of the things that ends, uh, ends up happening. Like, you, you simply appreciate that it's happening in a way. And you also, I, I believe, learn ways to uninvite unnecessary torture. Uninviting unnecessary torture. You figure out ways to do that. You're like, oh, I'm not going to let that torture me. Or that that isn't even torturing me, and I'm, I'm allowing it to. You know, it's funny words, just, just side note here, but like the word torture, I don't use it a lot. I, try, I probably use it more often than I think, but it's used a lot in general. And it's weird the visual that brings to mind. Like it doesn't bring to mind the visual of... of real physical torture. It's kind of like what I've said about violence and fights in general, where I can't stop myself from having an almost cinematic view. Like when I hear that two people got in a fist fight, it's not that I imagine it just like the movies, but I imagine it much more dramatic than it actually is. 
Like when you actually see two, like the, the sound of someone punching another person, especially in the in the torso, in the abdomen, like the sound of that, the visual of that. Sometimes you watch a fight video or something and you don't even realize that punches are being thrown. Like you don't even realize when the fight starts or ends. You just see this like sudden movement and it's not very dramatic. You're kind of confused. But despite knowing like what fights are actually like, because I remember saying this about, there was a video I saw years ago. It was a door cam footage and it was like a woman getting home and starting to unlock her front door and this man just like runs out from the shadows you know obviously at night and just like wraps her up in a bear hug and it's just like thrashing and and it's all so chaotic and fast and he just like grabs her and there's this struggle and and he i think he ends up carrying her off or dragging her off and it, but it's just like all this thrashing Whereas, like, if I had he just heard that, if I had heard, like, oh, a man, you know, kidnapped a woman from her front door at night when she was unlocking her door, like, I would almost imagine this, like, slow, lurching movement from the predator and then him just, like, swooping her up and it's all like a movie scene when the reality is just like, oh, my God. You wouldn't even know what you're seeing if you saw that. If you just like were walk driving by and you saw that, like you'd know something was wrong, but like I don't think you'd really be able to comprehend what you're seeing. Kind of like how these fight videos and stuff, you'll just suddenly a fight starts outside of a bar. There's like, you know, security footage and you're just like, I didn't even see where he really swung at him. I just saw them kind of go toward each other. And next thing I knew, one of the guys was knocked out. There's a subtlety to it or something, even though it's just this crude you know, mess in, in reality. Like a subtlety in that you don't know what's going on. Um, but yeah, it, the word torture is kind of like that for me where it's more abstract though. Like when I think of torture, I don't think of like a very vivid, realistic depiction of a certain torture method. You know, even when I'm, even when it is physical torture this, that I'm hearing, like I visualize, like some, like a person hanging by their wrists. Like I do see that in my mind, but it's like the person, whatever they're doing to them, is like very abstract. And that's probably that because I have that visual. It's probably why the abstract version of torture, which is what I'm talking about here with Buddhism and, and life, you know. I think that's why it lends itself to that so much. Like that's why the word torture lends itself so much to like psychic torture, emotional torture. But it's such a vivid word. Like we really, we all really like the word torture. I'm not alone with that. Like you just hear it. You hear the word torture and like you feel something. You're like, oh my God. Even though I've never been truly tortured some sort of medieval torture. Like I can relate to that. I, I, I know what that's, I know how horrible that is. Um, but anyway, going back to the torture I'm talking about, the torture I'm talking about, you know, it's, it's this, you know, self-controlled torture. 
and uh, you know the practice of doing that because you know when i say that too it's like i'm not talking about like deliberately causing yourself pain you know i'm talking about just thinking thoughts that you would otherwise push away and then have you know you get into meditation where you know like sitting with your brain sitting with your mind like truly just sitting with yourself is the idea and that initial flood of like oh here's what happens when i don't control my my thoughts here's what happens when i have no control over my thoughts and that's typically racing thoughts negative thoughts like you you sit someone down who doesn't have experience meditating and you ask them to close their eyes it's just going to be continuous thoughts and a lot of them are, are going to be thoughts they don't really like or even if it's a thought that's not negative when you're just sitting there alone with your thoughts it might not be very fun there's no stimuli you know there's no stimuli stimuli so it's like you really just have to sit with those thoughts and then when you do that you realize how much of your all day everyday life has those those same thoughts going on all the time like they they sit with you differently because you're distracted you're doing things but those same thoughts or those same thinking patterns are like running you know behind the scenes the entire time and they come to the forefront constantly and you have no control over them so actually having to like sit with your thoughts and then learn how to cause thoughts to cease you know I, i've talked about that on here over the years i'm I haven't been meditating for like the last year or so but you know I, I talked a lot about meditation on here when i got into it you, did you know i meditate you know what i like about meditation um it is interesting though you know it, even though I, I joke about how like every time you start doing something you want to just boast about it or have you heard of this thing called running yeah you just like run and you get exercise it, it's amazing you should do it you know you, you become an advocate you become you know you just can't stop talking about something when it's new and you're excited about it and there's nothing wrong with that but we all kind of sense that in people it's like when someone you know just read a book that you don't care about but they're like recommending it to you especially if it's a book that everybody's heard of you know and they're just like i in this book did you know in this book this book did you know in this book i mean it reminds me like years ago like the very first bar i ever hung out with hung out at hung out with i'm hanging out with the bar tonight I'm not hanging out at the bar. I'm hanging out with the bar. With the bar. That's a good thought. Um, but it was the first bar I ever really hung out with. Hung out. I keep saying hung out with. That bar really wants me to say that I hung out with it. And isn't that true too? But uh, there was this guy who was like borderline homeless who was a regular there, and I found out he had been a, the vocalist in this '80s crossover speed metal thrash sort of band. It kind of surprised me. I mean, it shouldn't. He had like long hair and a goatee and stuff. But I, I guess I just can't imagine this guy in his like catatonic, drunken state, singing in that type of band, being youthful. 
just this old metal guy. It doesn't, I don't, it doesn't even talk about music or anything. But uh, I found out just some somewhere else that he was the vocalist in this band. But I, we were never friends with him. Like one of my friends and I used to hang out there, and like we'd occasionally talk to him when we were drunk. But it's like we didn't call him by name. You know, he didn't know our names. Um, but like I remember this one day, like we went to the bar and he just sat with us, which he never did, and we bought him a beer. And he he had just he'd been like sleeping in a friend's basement, and he borrowed a copy of the book World War Z, which I think is about uh, I know it became a movie. This is before the movie. I think it's about a zombie epidemic, and it, the book. Well, I mean, he described it. I, everything I know about. World War Z is actually from this guy. The only reason I know anything about it, but it's like a zombie outbreak, but it's like written in a very realistic way. And he was just, he wouldn't shut up about it. Like we were trying to talk to him about random shit because he wasn't an interesting guy. He was just, I mean, I think he probably was, but he was so brain dead. But, like, you can have interesting banter with him if you kind of led the way, but he, everything we talk about, he go, well, in World War Z, and he, he'd only read half of it, so he hadn't even finished it, but he's like, in World War Z, oh, that reminds me of World War Z, and it became this inside joke between my friend Nick and I, he was the one I was with, like, it would be like, World War Z, oh, it's like World War Z. But it was, it's, it's, it's like what happens, like, this guy was like, this, you know, this, I don't even know how to describe him, like, this, this destroyed man, that's exactly how to describe him, this destroyed man who's like, borderline homeless, drunk all the time, like, unemployed, just nothing going for him, everything going against him. Like, he got this joy out of reading part of, you know, I don't even think he had read half, I think he had read, like, few chapters like he had woken up that morning in his friend's basement and just read a few chapters of world war z and it was like this guy had read the bible and so you know but the idea like this guy he found some joy that morning he probably never even read the rest of it you know he probably never even read the rest of it but it brought this guy like so much joy and he was proselytizing about world war z like he kept saying, no, no, you really got to read it. Because he kept recommending it, too, I remember. He was like, oh, no, you guys really got to... Like, you try to talk to this guy about something else. And he'd just be like, no, but really, like, you guys, you guys got to read World War Z. Like, what are you guys doing here if you're not reading World War Z? What was he? What was he? What was he? <laughs> what was he? Uh, what was he? Did you say World War Z? World War Z. Did you say what was he? What was he? That's funny to me. Um, but it just became this inside joke, which isn't going to be funny to anybody who listens to this. You had to be there. You had to be there listening to this guy talk about World War Z. This is the same place where there was this other old drunk. There were, there were a bunch of these old drunks who just spent all their time there. And not just your normal alcoholic. Like These are people who really had been flushed down the toilet of life. I mean, I guess I'm acting like that's not normal at bars or something but I guess I was young that was my first experience like meeting actual Simpsons characters or something yeah I, I, I probably feel differently about it now maybe 
No, these are magical creatures, though. And this one guy, like they called Mumbly Joe, I'd say he was in his 50s. Hard to tell with a guy who's lived that hard of a life, but I'd say he was in his 50s, gray hair, gray mustache, wore a, wore a hat, short, missing teeth. Nobody really liked him, but he was just this character at the bar who would just, he really would mumble, like you couldn't tell what he was saying. And sometimes he'd get really drunk and more boisterous and you, you could hear him properly. And there was one time where he's like, yeah, I, I, I signed, they signed me up for reading, because he was illiterate. And he was like, they signed me up for, um, you know, reading classes at the community college. And when I was signing up, they said, what's your email address? And I said, they haven't told me what my email address is. Like, I don't know my email address. And they're like, well, we need your email address. And it became clear, like, as we listened to him explain this, that he thought that email addresses were issued by the government, like, street addresses. Like, this is a guy who, like, like I said, he's illiterate. This guy is actually illiterate. Toothless. Probably been drunk for the last 40 years. 40. This guy's probably been drunk his entire adult life. He's unemployed, like... I don't know where this guy lives. I don't know if he's another guy who's like sleeping in someone's basement. But these were rough people, like people who had rough existences. And it was amazing to me. This is probably like 2000, I don't know, 2011 maybe. Maybe a little earlier, probably around, I'd say around 2011 though. And, you know, this guy just missed the internet. Like he, he just like bypassed the internet up to that point. He can't read. He's just hanging out at these bars drunk. He's probably been doing that the entire time the internet's been around. He's never had to have an email address. He probably has done labor ready. Just done, you know, just the, the most basic grunt work. And how is he supposed to know that an email address, like how is he supposed to understand that like, the way address is referred to in, you know, email address is different than, you know, a physical address, a mailing address. Like, if you didn't know better, and Mumbly Joe didn't, you know, why should that be any different than your street address? Like, you don't get to choose your own street address. At some point in time, you do. Some people have done it. Every once in a while, they let somebody choose their own street address. Uh, but, you know, in America, you know, you, you don't just go, oh, yeah, I want my address to be this. I'm moving into this house. The address is now this. No, it's just that's your address. Even if you build a new house, you know, here's your address. So why should it be any different? But it, it was just an amazing moment to me talking to this guy because... You know, he, he almost, you know, he was really drunk, so he, he was boisterous Joe rather than mumbly Joe. But, he, you know, he, it was almost like watching, like, the world's best stand-up comic. But he was totally sincere and just ranting and just being like, they tried to sign up for reading classes at the local community college, and they said, what's your email address? They haven't told me what my email address is. I don't know what my email address is. And then going, I don't remember, I, I wouldn't be able to, the reason I don't quote him from there is because I wouldn't be able to do it justice. But it was just evident from what he said that 
yeah, he, he didn't understand what an email address is and thought that it was issued just like your house address. But that itself, like, that character doing that, it's like, this is what stand-up comedians wish they could do. Because there was a subtlety to it. Talking a lot about subtlety tonight. But, I, you know, there's a subtlety to it, too. It was like the world's driest, best humor. And that's how you know I'm an art fag at heart, because it's like just talking to this old drunk rant about email addresses. Email. Email addresses. Talking about email addresses. Um, you know, just listening to that, I'm like seeing the, the artistic value in it but that, i mean I, i'll never deny doing that like you talk to a guy like that i'm like oh yeah this is this is it guys and i, I was with a friend and i remember like saying to my friend i was like you know pretty much that that's it that's why that's what you go out looking for like listening to somebody talk about current events politics just the anything any of the usual bullshit what could they say that's more interesting than what that guy said especially because like my brain has been conditioned to just be like email address email address i know what an email address is i've been signing up for email addresses for 20 years and then to meet a human who just doesn't live in that reality i mean that is like rip van winkle right there that is, you know, that guy, it, it is like that guy fell asleep and then woke up and was just like, what year is it? What, what is that? That is like some Encino man stuff. It's like that guy was in a coma and woke up and suddenly there's something called email addresses and they ask him what his is. And, you know, you, when you sign up for something, they ask your address. What's your mailing address? Where do you live? So when they ask you that on a similar form for your email address, your email address, why would you not think it's something similar that's like given to you? And it's almost surprising that's not the case. You know, it's kind of surprising to me in a way with like how regulated our society is. It is kind of amazing to me that when the internet first came to be, it was just like, oh, we'll just let people sign up using whatever name they want. They can they can make a million email addresses under a million different names. They can pretend to be somebody else. It can be something, some cool screen name. It could be anything. You know, I'm glad they did that. But it's kind of surprising that knowing how powerful that is. I mean, you think about like a phone number. Like a phone number is given to you. And if you use that phone number in a way you're not supposed to, if you commit a crime, it's like they can trace you to that number. They can trace you to your cell phone. They can, you know, if you, if you prank call from someone, even from your landline back in the day, it's like that can be traced to you. So, you know, phone numbers, mailing addresses, you can't screw around with those. They're given to you and they can ruin your life. But the internet gets created and it's like no no the norm is going to be for every citizen to just go to hotmail or yahoo aol even and just create whatever name they want and be able to send it to whoever and yeah it's kind of it's, it's traceable but not completely not unless it's criminal
Like if an email's criminal, yeah, the cops can trace it to the IP or whatever, whoever, they can find out who sent it. But like you could just send a non-criminal email, might, it might be a bad email, it might be a mean email. A mean email, a mean email. And uh, there's nothing anybody can do. And you, you have no idea who it actually is. So Mumbly Joe's right. Like, why, why wouldn't it be just government issued, like very controlled? If you email somebody, it's very clear who's doing it. And your email address can't change. So it's kind of amazing they allowed this free-for-all with that. World War Z. World War... No, no, but you gotta read World War Z. What got me going on this whole thing was just talking about how... This is the, the, the weirdest fucking example of this I have. You know, I was just talking about how, like, when something is new to somebody and they're excited about it, how they, they don't shut up about it. I was saying, you know, meditation was that way. Like, when I first started meditating, it's like you want to be like, have you heard of this, this thing called meditation? You ever tried it? I recommend it. Oh, yeah, when I was meditating the other day. Oh, in meditation, you know, it's like when something's new and exciting to you, you want to talk about it. There's nothing wrong with that, but... We all kind of have this built-in sensor. Like when someone's doing that, it actually repels us. We're kind of annoyed by it just by default. I wish you'd shut up about meditation. I should meditation this. And my example of that, because I mean, there's a million examples. It's like when someone's in a new relationship. Oh, you know, I was I was hanging out with Mike. You're hanging out with a girl. Like I, I was hanging out with Mike the other day, and uh, oh, you know, that reminds me of Mike. Will you shut up about Mike? Everything makes you think about Mike. I really want to read this book because Mike. I really want to read this book because of Mike. Oh, me and Mike are going to go, me and Mike, me and Mike. But when someone just won't like shut up about this person they recently started dating, like it's, it, but there's nothing wrong with it, you're excited. But just as the audience, you get kind of annoyed. World War Z? Me and Mike would rewrit. Mike lent me his copy of World War Z and I've read three chapters. This thing's so. You gotta read it. But out of all examples that I could use of that, I'm like, yeah, there's one time this like crazy drunk guy at a bar like wouldn't shut up about World War Z after he read three chapters. But that would be my example. And so with meditation, that's, you know, what you end up doing, but because it, it's meditation's a thing that humans do. So you're going to do what humans do when they do something, which is talk about it, get giddy. There's a giddiness. It's almost like if you know somebody who's in a manic state, like if you've known somebody who's manic depressive, and even though they're more fun and positive when they're manic, when you detect a mania is going on, you're, you actually don't want to talk to them. You don't trust it. It's like you can't match their energy. There's this impulsivity that is it's just you're like, oh boy. And I've been in manic states before. I'm not manic depressive, but I've gone through a manias before. And I know that I did that. Like, I remember calling this friend of mine with, like, all these ideas, and 
him him kind of going along like not not ideas I wanted to do with him but just my ideas about things and for me it was like this rush of euphoria and just everything in my brain felt interconnected and I felt electric and alive and when you feel that way like you want to talk to other people you want to engage is what it is and I'm recalling this friend and like you know he was laughing and enjoying it but I could also tell he was uneasy you know it's like this aggressive positivity and uh, it's kind of the same feeling you get when someone's like giddy about something new like someone's talking about a new relationship oh Mike Mike, 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 Mike. Um, when someone's doing that to you, you know, like you don't trust it. You're like, oh, this isn't stable is what you feel. Like this isn't somebody in a committed relationship who occasionally mentions their spouse when it's relevant or something like that. Like this is a person who has like this new relationship that's built on shaky ground and they won't shut up about it. And so you, you don't trust it. You're like, what it is too is you're like, you're like I'm not going to invest in this. I'm not going to invest in talking to you about Mike. I'm not going to invest in you talking about Sarah. Oh, Sarah? Oh, Sarah has a tattoo of that. Sarah, Sarah, um, I went out with Sarah the other night and, uh, oh, me and Sarah do that. Like when someone's doing that with you, you're just like, this isn't stable. This isn't, I can't invest in this. In two months, you'd be like, oh man, dude, Sarah, fuck it. Dude, Sarah told me it's not working out. I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, what can I do, like, to talk to Sarah? Like, I saw this coming. This is why I didn't invest in the Sarah stuff. Because I, I knew this would happen. And now I'm not going to invest in this either. Um, so it's like th- when things come on and they're too giddy or something, you're you're kind of like, I know, I know that your energy, I know that you want to like spill your energy out onto somebody else, and I'm your friend, so that's what friends do—they spill their energy out on other people. But it's like. I'm not going to match this. Like, I'm not on the same page as you. And like I said, I've been on both sides of that. But it's kind of what a mania is. And I guess to tie this back around, you know, it, you know, so much of, you know, certain practices is not, is learning to not do that. I mean, for one, becoming, you know, more aware of, your neuroses because those are some of the main things that torture you I'm thinking about this kid who worked for me who I really like I I really like this kid but just uh, he tortures himself and then he tortures other people tortured me because I was his manager but it's like he'll have something that's a valid concern like a normal worry and then, like, let's talk about something practical, like, you know, something, maybe he, he thought his paycheck was short. And if someone 
brings that up to me. They're like, oh, hey, you know, like my paycheck looked like it was missing a, a couple hours or a day or something. Like, I'm going to understand why that's important to figure out and why that sucks if, it, if it, it's true. Sometimes it turns out it wasn't. You know, I, I've I had people before be like, oh, I think my paycheck was short. And it turned out it wasn't. It was just they had gotten more overtime on their previous paychecks and not on the, you know, just whatever it is. You know, sometimes there are mistakes or something that people, you know, in payroll, but, you know, sometimes it just ends up being nothing. Like they just thought something was off. I've been that person. I, I've looked at a paycheck before and been like, oh, that, that had to be short. And then I look at the breakdown of it and then I find out, oh no, it wasn't. I just expected something else from that paycheck. But this kid, like he'll have like valid concerns like that, but then that's like magnified and I would get like paragraphs of text messages from him. And, you know, maybe the proper thing to do in that situation is to be like, hey, you know, it's it's not appropriate to send paragraphs late at night to your boss about something that you could like talk to him about at work tomorrow. Like if this was the pre-cell phone days, you wouldn't even consider the idea of like calling your boss at 11 o'clock at night and leaving him a message or trying to talk to him and be like, hey, you know this, and then like talking for a long time. Like you wouldn't, it'd be insane to do that. But because of cell phones, it's like you you can send messages to that person, but this kid, you know, he does that. And, you know, I'm just like, man, you're torturing yourself. And something he does too is he'll have something that's a valid concern, something maybe it's worth discussing, but like it, it bleeds into this conversation about like how it's making him feel and how it's impacting him and all this stuff. And that's a, and, and you know, he says that like, this, this makes me feel like this, this, and this. And I guess for me, it's like, that's already implied in what you told me. Like, let's say it's like, oh, I, I think my paycheck might be a little short. Like, everything is built into that for me. Like, oh, yeah, that causes you financial stress. You might have been counting on what you thought. You, you might have been counting on what you thought wasn't included. It's it's anxiety-provoking. Like, it's anxiety-provoking if you get paid, like, direct deposit, and the number looks like it's lower than it should be. Now you have to wait for your pay stub to come in the mail. You have to wonder if you're going to have to have like an awkward conversation with your boss about it. You have to get to the bottom of it. You don't want to be wrong. You don't want to raise an issue about it and then end up being wrong about it. Um, so I, I, I totally understand everything that goes into that. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't want to talk about this kid too much more because I really like him. But I just see these ways that he like tortures himself and then like that spreads to other people and then it launches into this like breakdown of like how this issue makes him feel. And I guess for me, I understand how things make people feel. Maybe not in every possible case, but like if somebody tells me something, like like let's say, let's go with something completely different. Like somebody says like, Sarah broke up with me. I'm like, I understand everything like 
that goes into that. Like for most people at least. Like most people, if Sarah broke up with you, oh yeah, you're miserable, you're obsessed with it, you're sad, you're pretty much paralyzed. Or even if it's not that bad, it's still, it's something. It's like a drug of some kind. It's like a bad trip for a lot of people. Or or like that person's manic. Like, oh, Sarah broke up with me. But you know what? I'm going to do all this. I'm going to start going to the gym. I'm going to start doing those things that I, Sarah wouldn't let me do. I'm going to do this. Oh, my life's way better without Sarah. You don't trust that either. Sarah sucked so much anyway. I'm going to be so much better. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, you don't... That's not a good thing either. But it's like either way, someone telling you, Sarah broke up with me. Like, there's a lot that's just pre-built into that. It doesn't mean you can't talk about it. But I think there should be more understanding that chances are the person talking to you understands the statement you just made and the implications of that. Like, you don't need to elaborate too much more. Like, yeah, you have to talk some things out. But you don't really have to elaborate too much more if you just state the fact. And, I mean, you see this a lot with people's opinions, politics and everything, where it's like, this happened and it's bad. They shot rockets into Gaza. Did you know that's bad? Like, I hear that a place got hit with rockets, and I'm just like, everything's built into that. Everything's built into that fact. Everything I need to know is built into that fact. And for me personally, and this will tie back to Buddhism, um, but for me personally, like, I hear like, oh, you know, this, this country got hit with rockets. And my reaction is like, Oh, that's that's bad. That's not good. Oh, that's terrible. That's just terrible. But it doesn't my mind doesn't go to and it does sometimes, but like my mind doesn't go automatically to oh, well, I'm taking a side. Oh, Hamas did this horrible thing to Israel. And I'm taking a side. Oh, Israel retaliated in this horrible way. I'm taking a side. I'm taking a side. You know me, I'm taking a side. What was he? World War Z. I'm taking a side. It's a sequel I'm making to World War Z. It's a, I'm taking a side. This time I'm taking a side. But I guess, like, I don't need to attach myself to one or the other. And I can just acknowledge, like, that's bad. No matter what else is going around, no matter whether context there is, that's bad. That's not good. And unless I'm really invested, I don't need to know anything else. Like, I don't need to 
hear an analysis of how anyone feels about that or how I, be told how I should feel about it. It goes back to like you know one of the common topics on this show, which is just a description versus an explanation. You know, description is Sarah broke up with me. An explanation is like Sarah broke up with me, and I think that it's because I did this, or I think it's because she likes Mike more than me. I think maybe Sarah was seeing Mike. You know, did you know that like Sarah's like the first girl that I ever you know really liked? You know, um, like dude, I'm fucking fucking heartbroken, man. You know, like it's more explanatory, like explaining why Sarah breaking up with you hurts. When Sarah breaking up with you really hurts, it man, it hurts. No, but uh, who's Sarah? We all know Mike. Who's, who the hell is Sarah? I've known a million Sarahs in my life. A million. A million, a million and a half. But like the simple description. Sarah broke up with me. Oh, damn, I'm sorry. Don't really need more than that. If you're invested in that person, you'll listen to them talk about it. But you wouldn't do that with a stranger. But you will tolerate your best friend just like going off into the weeds about their breakup because they're your friend. But it's not really a, a privilege that extends to just anybody. Um, what was I going to say about that? Uh, the description. Most of the time, just a description is all that's needed. Oh, this guy did something bad, and did you know it's bad? I said that before about, you know, dealing with the mafia subject. You'll read a lot of coverage of the mafia, or even research, even historical stuff, where there's this need to kind of editorialize and be like, Did you know these guys are bad? Did you know that this is wrong? Did you know that this is evil? And it's like, if I say that... These guys murdered this guy. I trust your judgment enough to, as far as how to deal with that. Like if somebody tells me, I go, this guy killed a person. Yeah, there, there might be something deeper, you know, maybe it was self-defense, maybe, you know, who knows? It, there could be any number of angles to it. It's not morally black and white necessarily. But I actually, but I don't actually need more than that to make my own judgment. Because the description would include, like, what led to the murder, why it happened. And so all I need to know is just that basic fact to, to form my own judgment. And my own judgment is always going to be, yeah, even if, the, even if there was kind of a moral gray area, maybe the guy deserved it, maybe the guy provoked it. I'm still going to be like, oh, that's bad. That's not good. No matter what, that's not good. And if something's especially horrific, I really don't need any guidance. And so I feel that, that same way toward other people where like, you don't need my guidance. And if you do need my guidance on this, 
you know, it's not even worth giving that guidance. Like, if you need my guidance to know whether or not a simple fact or description of an event is good or bad or, you know, some things are neither, of course, but, you know, if it's something that's just objectively bad, like, you don't need my guidance. And the only reason to add anything is is for your own virtue signaling, because, you know, when you say, oh, this bad thing happened, did you know that's bad? You're actually not doing it to guide other people. You're doing it to let other people know that, you know, you're virtuous. It's the oldest form of virtue signaling. It's not like virtue signaling is new just because it became a political buzzword in recent years. It's something that people have always done. You know, it's it's just a, it's a way of being like, oh, did, did you know that's bad? And it's, the question isn't actually posed to the person you're talking to or addressing. It's letting that person know that, oh, yeah, like I'm a good person because I know this is bad. And I'm letting you know that I know it's bad. And this is all torture. Like, you know, I might have strayed from my original topic as I always do, but, you know, what I'm describing is torture. Most explanations are torture. Descriptions can be torture, too. You can describe something torturous. But explaining the torture, what they call explaining the torture, is unnecessary. Um, and, uh, you know, going back to just the Buddhism stuff, I've been trying to work my way back there. All this relates, but, you know, a lot of it too, a lot of like Zen Buddhism revolves around contradiction. And not contradiction in the sense of like, oh, I decided to wear socks that don't match today. Look at me. Anybody notice my socks don't match? I'm a contradiction. Oh, like, I wear Hello Kitty t-shirts, but I play death metal, and I'm a contradiction. You know, there's like stupid, uh, superficial ways of like, trying to seem like a contradiction or pointing out contradictions like that. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about contradiction in the sense that you know, these things cancel each other out. Like two thoughts that cancel each other out. Two two pieces of information that cancel each other out. You know, that's kind of what a koan is. A koan brother. A koan brother. Koan brother. You know, that's kind of what it is. It's like, here's something contradictory. Here's something your brain can't reconcile. And you might be able to reconcile them one at a time. But you can't reconcile them at the same time. You can't consider them both being at play at the same time. And, you know, and most of like the classic koans are... You know, it's like you, you can't really appreciate them today. Like, I didn't even know that what's the sound of one hand clapping. I didn't even know that was considered a koan until getting into this stuff. Because, you know, it's like, I guess like th those sorts of questions or statements, I'm just, I turn my nose up at them because you've just heard them so many times. 
but it's like a koan doesn't have to be some cliche koan and if you actually pay attention you're dealing with koans all day every day you're constantly having to consider two conflicting possibilities you know it's what happens when there's two arguments that are opposed to each other but each have valid points and like you feel this magnetism to choose one and you know the, the answer is often like oh I don't have to choose either one I can just kind of take a step back I can step outside of myself and I don't have to reconcile this I don't have to synthesize these into one thing that makes sense I don't have to choose one of these as the thing that makes sense I can actually step back from this and not force these two things to be, you know, I, I don't have to like search for anything total in these things. And if I take a step back, they melt into the greater totality where I don't have to really make distinctions between them or differentiate them or feel anything about them. Because that's what a koan is basically designed to do. Like, consider some contradictory reality in your head while trying to meditate. And the purpose is to break your brain a little bit. And by breaking your brain, you are released from your own expectation that you have to choose one or make sense of this. I no longer have to make sense of this. I no longer have to contextualize this. I no longer have to choose one or the other. I no longer have to choose right from wrong. I can actually take a step back in this moment. My brain is, is cracked open like an egg. And, you know, how I feel about things can kind of just spill out into everything else. Rather than it all spilling into me for, for once. And that's something you have to deal with all day, every day. Like hypocrisy. Everybody's hypocritical. And it's also the one thing that we lunge at other people for all the time. You'll see like one of the main criticisms people, the main criticisms people direct at each other is you said this, but then you said this. You're a hypocrite. You do this, but you also do this. You say this, but you also do this. You say this, but this, you say this. But then you said this. You know you said this. You know he said this, but then he said this. And what's weird is, one, like within the person who's hypocritical, we feel this dissonance almost. Even though I think hypocrisy is a natural state. Like if we think about our own hypocrisy, we feel this dissonance, like I have to do something about this. This is horrible, this is torture. 
I'm tortured by my own hypocrisy. I can't, I don't know what to do about this. So I'm going to try to hide it, try to forget about it. I'm going to point it out in other people. But then when we point it out in other people, you know, even though it just seems like, oh, you know, you look, he's a hypocrite. Look at this hypocrite. He said this, but he also said this. Um, when we point it out in other people, we're often trying to reconcile that too. We're not really looking at that person and saying like, oh yeah, this person has conflicting sides of themselves. Because it's kind of a koan to think of a, hip a person's hypocrisies as like, which one are they? If someone's this, but they're also this opposing thing, or if this person said this, but they also said this opposing thing, you know, what are they? What, how do they really feel? And what we want to do when we see hypocrisy is pretend that they believe one of them and not the other one. Whichever one like fits our needs better. Like if you're a liberal and you're like, oh, you know, you ever noticed that uh, the Republicans are really anti-abortion, but they're pro-gun? You know, the idea is, is to point out that like, oh, they actually encourage death. Oh, they act, they act like, you know, they care about the sanctity of all life, but they also do things that encourage death. And so what they really are are people that encourage death. Because we can't reconcile that. And that, that has like an agenda to it. You know, that's, you know, that, that there's an agenda like when someone points that out. But uh, the, what they're typically saying is like, oh no, like, oh, they're pro-life and pro-gun? Well, then they're really just pro-gun. They're really just pro-death. Because it's too hard to consider the possibility that they could believe in the sanctity of life in this one way while also support gun ownership which kills people. You got to choose one or the other. And you take a step back from that and you're like, I don't have to reconcile that at all. I don't have to assume one or the other. I don't have to make some grand declaration about a person who has those values at all. I can take a step back from it and those things just kind of melt together and melt into everything else. I don't think that was the best example I could have given. But we often do want to like choose one for that person. It's not, oh, hey, look at the hypocrite. Isn't it crazy that they believe both of those things? Instead, it's a more cynical response, which is, Oh, hey, look at the hypocrite. They say that both these things, but they actually only believe this. This one, I don't know. You know, dealing with the news, dealing with um, information is just a constant koan. Oh, hey, this is a fact, but this is also a fact. Or these people think that's a fact. There's evidence of this, but there's also evidence of this. I better choose. Just let it break your brain. 
Oh, the Republicans are good and the Democrats are bad. You know, I've got to choose one. Rather than just... Because, I mean, I think when you take a step back... You know, you just kind of take in the phenomena. Like, this is a phenomenon. Wow. Wow, this is happening. This is something that I can observe or interact with. Wow. This is something I can consider. I mean, I had a joke during Coronavi, because I thought I probably had it in February 2020. And I had some, like, ongoing, just, like, lung breathing issues after I was sick in late February 2020. And my joke on here was, like, you know, it's the hoax that maimed me. Yeah, Coronavi is a hoax, but it caused me permanent damage. And I don't even mean, that joke's not even meant to be like a placebo joke. Like mentally, oh, you, you know, you, um, like a, whatever that's called. It's, it's the same idea as like a placebo. Almost like a phantom limb or something, like where it's like, because you imagine that coronavi damaged you. You, you feel it in your body. Psychosomatic, I think, is the word I'm looking for. I'm not even talking about like some psych- psychosomatic thing. I'm just talking about like believing coronavi is a hoax, but also believing you had coronavi. That's a stupid one, but that could be a koan. The hoax that maimed me. It's a stupid one. But really, it's any time you're like put up against like a contradiction, hypocrisy, and the larger scale it is, and and the more personal it is. I think the the more you gain from releasing yourself from it, because you know we often have these things that we're dealing with. Like, what am I? Am I this or am I this? I've got to choose one. I mean, you can kind of see this with, um, you know, the gender stuff where, I mean, people have pointed this out, but like people who are into these new evolving gender identities seem to caricaturize gender more than just the traditional people do. They tend to put more weight on it than even the people who who these caricatures are based on. Like someone who, you know, really wants to be a man who wasn't born a man can easily have a, a way more caricatured idea of what it means to be a man than a man does. A man does. And they seem to, like, put a lot more weight in what those genders are than, like, someone like me. Because, like, I'm someone who, like, never tried to be a man or tried to be a boy. Like, I never felt pressure to be more of a man or be 
do boy things. I, I never had that in my life. Most of the people I knew didn't. Maybe it's a generational thing, but I just really wasn't around that much. I just kind of, I, I just never considered it. I, I just always been like, I'm, I'm whatever I am. But I, I do gravitate toward guy things. They might be weird guy things, but weird guy things are still guy things. Guy things. But really, and that's just kind of like going wherever the wind blows me. And that's where the wind blew me. The wind blew me. It is, though. It just, oh, this is where the wind blew me. If it blew me somewhere else, that's where it would have blown me. The wind would have blown me. Ever gotten blown by the wind? Um, so, like, the idea of, like... I don't know. I mean, like, I'll talk about what it is to me to be a man. Like, I think that's... It is something. There is something substantial to what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman. Um, but it, it's not as... It's not as fixed as it's been made out to be. But it, it's more like a, a gradient or something. Like within manhood, there's this gradient and there's this unknown. And you're not confined to be a certain type of man. But if you're a man, you'll still be a man. And you kind of, I don't know, it's like, it's kind of like an out of body experience. Um, it's kind of an out of body, ex I don't know what I'm saying. It's kind of an out of body experience. Like, it's kind of an out of body experience to like take a step back and be like, I'm just gonna let the wind blow me wherever I'm going. And you just, you're not like thrashing, thinking like, oh, you know, oh, the wind's taking me here. I don't want to go here. I want to go over there. I want to choose this. And it's kind of what I mean with like a koan breaking your mind. And I guess like the koan of manhood to me is like, yeah, I am this very fixed thing in certain ways. But I'm also not that. And I don't need to actually reconcile those. I don't need to choose one or the other. I can just kind of let it break my mind. And that's where the actual reconciliation is. Is accepting that, oh, hey, yeah, you know, I have these qualities, but I also have these qualities. I don't need to latch on to one side of that and say, you know, I'm going to go this way. And I think like some of these people who, you know, are into these rapidly developing gender identities, like they're, they're trying to force themselves through the wind. They're trying to like walk upstream through the wind. And they're like, I really got to get over there. I got. I really got to go that way. 
I really gotta go that way. No, I, I, everything's blowing me in this direction, but I gotta go that way. And maybe some people need to do that, you know. But it, it's it's it still seems it, it reminds me of like people thinking like, oh, here's a fact and here's a fact. I've got to choose one. And by choosing that that one, it's got to prove this other fact isn't a fact. It's actually wrong. When they're both facts. Both facts. I probably got... I, I don't think anybody who's listening to this would have any idea what I'm even talking about at this point. Tor- I want to go back to torture, though. Because this is a lot of what the torture is. I mean, it's all the personal stuff that you think all the time. Like something bad happens and it makes you feel something. And then you start feeling something about what you're feeling. And all the while you're thinking. You're thinking about how you're feeling. And you're then thinking about that. It's like this hall of mirrors. And everything you do is magnified by this electric anxiety where you're paranoid of other people's motives, what other people are doing, what they're even thinking. And then you're paranoid about your own thoughts, paranoid about what you're thinking. You're questioning yourself. You're questioning your own judgment. And this is something that plays out all day, every day for you. Just a drive to the grocery store is an incredibly stressful, anxiety-provoking thing. I mean, it's more stressful than I'd like it to be, simply because I don't trust other people's driving. But you can easily make it a lot worse with your own mindset. Why is this guy going so slow? Oh my God, what's he fucking He's doing this to inconvenience me. Oh my God, this guy cut me off. I've got to react. I've got to feel something. I've got to give him the finger. Oh, maybe I shouldn't have given him the finger. Oh no, now he's slowing down. Oh, now he's following me. Like, not having control over your own torture. Like, because that, like, someone cutting you off in traffic, that's torture and you can't control it. Like, I will never not be tortured by that. I'll never not be tortured by a car who's going 40 miles an hour in the fast lane and I'm stuck behind him. The one thing I don't do is just soak it in. Like something I've noticed people do on the road is, I mean, it'll happen to me. Like sometimes, because, you know, I go the speed limit, usually a little over. But lately, like since my since I totaled my car last month, a couple months ago, I've been happy just to barely drive the speed limit. I'm just like, I'm already going so fast. This is already so much faster than any person. Like, this is already taking me where I need to go so much faster than anything else could. Do I really need to go 75 or 80 when I can just go 70, when I can go 65? Like, you know, is that that big of a deal? So I'm not a speed demon, but I'd say I, I drive the speed limit or a little above. But so every once in a while you get somebody who tailgates you. You're just going too slow for them. So they're just right behind you. 
And even though you can't necessarily see their face in every case, their car becomes like a personification of them. It's almost like you can see the car's face. Like the car becomes an expression. And I'm not even kidding. Like it really does feel that way. It's what I was saying last night where it's like, you know, your body's an extension of your soul and your car is too. Your car is an extension of your body, but it's still your soul in control of it. And cars, like, they take on looks. It's not like it physically has a face on it like some cartoon. But it's like you have a vibe. Like, sometimes it happens when, like, you see a car behind you on the highway and you can just tell they're, they're not close to you yet. But you're like, that car is going to tailgate me. I can just tell. And it almost has a face on it. You might not be able to see the driver, but it's like the car has a vibe and a face. But when people do that, like they'll tailgate you. And what they can do in most cases is go around you. Just go around. And like sometimes when people go around you, they purposely like do it so abruptly. Like they get really close to you and then just jerk their car to the next lane and then jerk it back and cut you off. But you can just as easily, like as long as there's room to pass, like that person can just very unemotionally be like, you know what, I'd like to go faster today. This car's not going as fast as I'd like. So I'm just going to, you know, put my turn signal on, get into the other lane, switch back over once I've passed that person at a reasonable distance. But even worse, like the worst one of all, worse even than the person who like jerks their car over and then like jerks it back to cut you off like worse than them is the person who has just open lanes on either side for miles you're practically the only people on the highway and they come up behind you and they start tailgating you and they just keep doing it like they don't pass you because they've now committed and it's not even necessarily some total, I mean, that's a very psycho thing to do, but it's something that happens like more often than you, you know, you'd realize because that person now enjoys being mad. Like it's not about going fast anymore. It's not about like getting where they're going faster. It's not even about the need for speed. Like the game to them has now become harassing your ass. It's the game has now become like, oh, I'm going to bully this car in front of me. I'm going to do something really dangerous. I'm going to follow this car really closely because now it's not about the fact that this car was going slow and I want to go fast. It's, it's about making a statement to this car. This is the game now. And every once in a while that happens and I'm just like, fuck, this is fucking insane. This is... I don't even have a word for it. And it, it's more common than you realize. Like, oh, wow, that person now just wants to tailgate me. Um, why am I talking about this? I, I was going somewhere with it. Um, well, I, I, that's just being, like, stuck in your own thoughts. I mean, that's that's just, that's torture. Like, that person is torturing themselves. They're torturing you. And your reaction to it is going to be like fear. And I guess what got me going on all this was just 
the idea of like just everything you do in your daily life, like going to work, just a million opportunities to, to torture and be tortured. Your drive to and from work, torture, home, torture. Reacting to everything, responding to everything, feeling something from everything. Going home and even if you're watching TV, something is still producing this anxiety, this dread. And it all seems to be outside of your control. And there's no way you can take a step outside of it and appreciate it. Because you feel like you have to make some kind of choice or decision. You feel like there's something you can do. But you're reacting to every little micro situation and thinking about what you should do. Oh, I, d I didn't like the way my boss talked to me. Maybe I should say this. And, but I'm, I'm, I've been worried I'm going to lose my job. And... You're on the highway. It's like, should I go around this person? Oh, this car's tailgating me. Like, should I change lanes? I'm going to be late. Are my headlights on? Did one of my headlights burn out? Is the store going to close before I get there? Is the person in front of me in line going to take too long? Are they going to have the kind of yogurt I like? Oh, they don't have it. Yeah, just uh, a lot of torture. Something that, I don't know if I've always noticed this and I just didn't think about it, but something I've noticed the last few months when I'm at grocery stores, because I just, I don't stare at people, but I do kind of look around. It's people watching. I've noticed, like, the, the number of people who, like, look at the ingredients with a furrowed brow. And it's not like they're squinting to read it easier. It's it's like this thoughtfulness, like I'm thinking really hard about the ingredients here. I've noticed like they, they hold the, the box up to their face and they look at the ingredient list or the whatever it is, the calories, what's in it. And they furrow their brow like very performatively. They scrunch it up. I'm thinking about this. And they probably are. Like, I mean, I, I look at the ingredients on things. Like, I'll, I'll look at the calorie amount, whatever. I usually only do that to see if something has caffeine. Like, I, I don't really... If I like something or want something, I just kind of go, yeah, that looks good. That looks like the kind of the one that I would get. I do it mainly with energy drinks and any kind of drink. I'm just like, how much caffeine am I going to get out of this? Ah, 100, not enough. 300, good. That's the main time I do it. I probably scrunch my brow when I'm looking for caffeine. But I, I've just noticed a lot of people at the grocery store, it's like there's this very intense look on their face when they're looking at the calories or ingredients, whatever whatever's on the side of the box. And I'm like, are they really thinking that hard about it? Because I will look at that stuff on occasion, and I, I don't think I scrunch my brow. I do it probably with caffeine because I'm, I'm just really like, I got to make sure this has caffeine. I got to make sure this has enough caffeine. Oh, I bought this drink and I bad you don't bite. I got I got I bought this drink and I found out it doesn't have any caffeine. What the fuck? What the fuck? You know, I probably scrunched my brow with that, but I'm just like, are all these people like scrunching they're looking at the side of the macaroni box and they're like scrunching their brow? Like do you really have that that much thought about it? 
I mean, do you is that a, is that really like a natural reaction to that? But they're like, oh, it has this. Oh, it has. I mean, you think about like all the ways that we try to torture each other. I mean, one of the most common is like if you ever drink like Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi, there's always someone from the peanut gallery who's like, you know, that has a set of medicine, a seed of medicine. Is it not, not a seed of medicine? What is it? Is it a seed of medicine? Is like what's in aspirin? I mean, I mean that's funnier, but uh, aspartame. Do you know that has a seed of medicine and aspartame in it? Do you know the diet Pepsi has a seed of medicine and aspartame? People love to say that to you. I remember even at bars, like there was one time I was at this bar, and I got like a. Uh, like a diet whiskey coke and there was this middle-aged gay man standing at the bar like chubby guy well-dressed and he goes that's gonna kill you you know and I was like what and he goes D diet coke that is aspartame that's gonna kill you you know and I was like I'm drinking alcohol with it like this is this is I'm drinking whiskey with this like that's gonna kill me. Like the second I, the second he poured the whiskey in, what, what difference does it make? On top of the fact that what difference does it make? Aspartame probably is a bad chemical for you. But guess what? I, I know it. I know that. I don't drink a ton of it. I don't drink a diet coke every day. It's a really nice treat, though. I really love the taste of it. But, uh, like, I, I know what's in it, and, I, and I've heard that's not good for you. But a lot of people, like, they really volunteer, as if you've never heard that before. As if the average person who drinks Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi has never heard of aspartame. And they volunteer it like it's helpful information, but it, it just kind of seems like an attack. It's just like pointless negativity. You know, is it bad for you? It's an explanation. And uh, I still just remember it was so funny, that guy, though. He's just like, you know, he's like, you know, that's bad for you. That's actually happened to me twice. One time I was at, I had talked to this girl on OkCupid, so this is probably like, I don't know, 12 years ago. And I talked to this girl on OkCupid. I think we exchanged phone numbers or something. And then I was down at this bar and like she had messaged me and I was like, oh, I'm at the bar across the street. I hadn't met her. And so I just like went over there to say hello. And I sat with her and her friends, which is just an interesting, I was, and I was already drunk. And I think she asked me what I was drinking and I was just like, oh, whiskey, a whiskey, a Diet Coke with a whiskey. Diet Coke with a whiskey. And some guy she was with, like, like, like a friend of a friend type guy, he's just like, oh, that is aspartame. That's bad for you. And I, I said the same thing that I said to the gay men. I was just like, this is alcohol. This is, you know, Diet Coke mixed with alcohol. Like vodka. I think there was a vodka that night. A vodka Coke. I always liked that. I always liked a vodka Coke... A vodka diet coke more than a whiskey coke. 
But yeah, it was like some sort of comment, like, oh, that's bad for you. And I'm like, do you not understand that there's also alcohol in it? Do you want to talk to me about how alcohol is bad for me too? Drinking vodka is bad for me too. But no, it's, it's for some reason, it's diet soda. People get on this pedestal. And they try to tell you what to do or what to think. It's like, you know, and also just do you not think I, I haven't heard that? Like for all you know, this is the only Diet Coke I've had all year. Like there's an assumption that, oh, this guy is just drinking Diet Coke all day every day and his brain's going to be just have holes in it. As if you care about me that much, too. That's the other thing. Like, I've only had strangers say that. Oh, hey, stranger, I didn't know you cared about my brain so much. But really, you're just attacking me. In a really um, non-testicular way. You know, not much testicles to pointing that out. It's a bitchy thing to say. Like the gay guy who said it, he was really kind of snooty and bitchy about it. He was just like, oh, yeah, that's going to kill you. And I'm like, what? That has aspartame in it. You'd think that I was actually drinking rat poison right then and there. Like, honestly, the way people bring that up, it's as if you're just drinking straight rat poison. Like, you know that's going to kill you right now? Like, that's actually going to kill you tonight? Like, you're going to drink that and you're going to have, like, an agonizing death tonight. But instead, it's like aspartame. Over time, with constant use, this might cause you problems. Like, that's what, that's what a bitchy thing to say to somebody. Really, a bitchy thought. But it's an attempt to torture you in some small way. Like, you should feel bad about drinking that. You should, you should be worried. You shouldn't do that, but because you are doing it, you should be worried. You should worry about your health right now. Very bitchy. And people do that in a lot of different ways. A lot of unsolicited advice. Most unsolicited advice is exactly that. You know, most unsolicited advice isn't like, oh, hey, instead of blowing your paycheck at the casino, save 200 of it. Put 200 of it in savings. You know, very little unsolicited advice is that. More often, it's like something just completely unnecessary that's just meant to kind of torture you in some small way. Hey, I'm going to say something to you that... It's hopefully going to torture you in some small way. And I'm going to pretend I'm being helpful. And the reality is you do enough of that to yourself as it is. You're doing it to yourself all day, every day. I mean, something I started doing a little while back, my car that I totaled, it wasn't running for a while and I got it fixed. And after getting it fixed, the CD player just stopped working. It was a 2006. 
And the CD player just stopped. It just wouldn't... It would still take discs in, but it just wouldn't play them. And so for the first time in my life, I got used to not listening to anything. I tried turning on the radio a couple times, but I already have to listen to the radio at work, and it's just, you know, every station just plays the same songs. So I'm just like, I don't. I already have to listen to this all day at work. I'm not going to find anything on the radio. So I just started driving in silence all the time. And it was very strange at first, because I'm like, I've, nev- I've actually never done this. From the time I was 16, driving for the first time, I don't know if I've ever not had music playing in my car. There had to be some very special circumstance. And I probably only did it for a very short period of time. But the idea of just day in and day out, driving without any sound. But you know what? I got completely used to it. Very quickly. And I got a new car. A new car. A new car. I got a new car. And it has a CD player. And you know what? I think I tested it once just to make sure it worked. But even though I have a CD player again and it works, I haven't listened to anything. It feels weird to me now to like the idea of listening to music while I drive. Or anything. Like, Maybe it'd be different if I was driving for an hour or two hours, going on, you know, actually going somewhere. But the idea of like driving 20 minutes, even a half hour, like I don't need music. I don't need sound. I don't need to listen to a podcast or anything. I've just adjust, readjusted to the, the fact that, and it's not silent. There's actually plenty to hear. And I've gotten to the point where maybe it's paranoia, but like I want to hear everything. I want to hear every siren the second it starts. I want to hear every screech of the tires. I want to hear the wind. I, I want to hear, and, and not in a, you know, not in a poetic way. I want to hear the wind. Like I want to know what's going on. Is what I'm saying. So driving in silence now, it's not silent for one. You're hearing things, and I'm thinking things. I really like that I can drive and along with paying attention to what's going on around me, I can just be entertained by my own thoughts. I'll listen to music in the car again, you know, but it's funny how quickly I adjusted to that after just never having done it, ever. Always had music on in the car. A lot of people would say, they, I can't drive without music. There's a lot of people who would be tortured by that. If you told someone, hey, you have to drive to work this morning, but no music, no music. Like, oh, this sucks. Oh, this fucking sucks. Oh, this sucks. 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 You know, a lot of people would feel like that was torture. Back to meditation. You saw where this was going. That's what meditation is to a lot of people. I want you to sit there, can't watch anything, you can't hear anything. You're gonna hear, you're gonna hear things. You know, you're gonna hear the things going on around you. They're gonna be quiet, probably. But uh, you're gonna, your ears are still gonna be working. 
but you're not going to have anything to entertain you. You're not going to have anything to distract you. You're just going to sit there. It'll be like you're in a waiting room, choosing not to read any magazines or look at your phone or listen to anything or watch any anything. It's like you're going to be in a waiting room, but instead of being forced to sit and wait, because that's what a waiting room is, you have to sit and wait because you have to go in and see the doctor or you have an appointment. So it's like you're being forced to do that. So it's not, you're not in control. Like, yeah, you drove yourself to the appointment and you're willingly waiting, but you're being forced to willingly wait to be able to go to your appointment. But the idea of in your own home, sitting there, doing nothing, you know, that's torture. That's the definition of boredom. And that the, the silence means, oh, what, what do I have except my own thoughts? And then the torture intensifies. Wow, the power just went out. Interesting. It's rainy, but I, I didn't think, whoa, lights are kind of flashing. This is weird. Wow. I feel like it's fitting. I mean, it's rainy, but... And it's cold. I forgot what this was like. Now they're back on. Interesting. It's kind of scary for a second there. I mean, that's what that is. I mean, that's, you know, good timing, because... Um, having to sit in darkness here's a little forced meditation because that's you know when the power goes out that's what happens too it's like welcome to the waiting room you're just going to sit and have to wait you're going to want to here's the torture you know here you're going to want to know what caused this you're going to going to want to know what the energy company's doing to bring the power back you're going to have to look for the candles. You're gonna have to look for a flashlight. You're gonna to have to find something to do. You're gonna to have to not be entertained by the things that normally entertain or distract you. You're not gonna be able to cook food unless you have like a, uh, a wood stove or something. I guess most people can use their phone now. That's something that's changed about power outages is like a lot of people can use their phone, but they're going to run out of juice. Although people have those like backup chargers, so that kind of thing. But um, it's not something you do by choice. Anyway, um, so with, uh, you know, the idea of like choosing to do nothing and then, well, you have your thoughts, but most of your thoughts are going to be anxious and endless one after the other, but then you learn ways to control that too. 
you know, you actually observe your own thoughts. I talked about this when I started meditating, where initially, you know, I would sit there first few times, especially lights are still flickering, flickering, lights are still flickering. And, uh, you know, your mind just races. And what you realize is that's not unique to meditation. Like, you become more aware of how much your mind races because all you are doing is sitting there watching your own mind paying attention to your own mind but you realize like this is what your brain is doing all the time you just have other distractions and you're not thinking about it you know you're not thinking about the fact that your mind is racing so much you're not thinking about like and it doesn't feel like it's as, it's racing as fast because i'm driving to the store i'm at work i'm i'm hanging out with people i'm doing something i'm doing this but it races just as fast as it does when you first try meditating and you're like sitting there like, holy shit, I can't stop this. This is just thought after thought after thought. One, one hyperlink to the next over and over again. But as you, you know, develop that practice and you, you learn how to you know, first slow your thoughts or even cause thoughts to cease momentarily, you pop them like bubbles but I think the slowdown was very interesting to me. Because I remember meditating and thoughts coming to me very slowly. They were still coming, but the rate was just much slower than it had been. And then the thoughts started to kind of cease. And ideally, you're not thinking about that. Because if you're thinking about not thinking, you're still thinking too much. But as the thoughts sort of slowed down, I was aware of that and kind of starting to enter a meditative state. And then I remember like a thought sneaking in and it really was like this feeling of like watching a mouse sneak under the crack of a door. And I was like, oh, here comes one. And contrasting that with a lifetime of experience of like a million ants streaming through. A million ants coming in one after the other through every crack. That's what the thoughts can be like, an ant race. But then when you slow them down, it's like, oh, here comes a thought. Oh, it's a, um, it's a mouse sneaking under the door. And then the next one is more like, oh, a cat sticking its paw under the door. And then all of a sudden, you're not even thinking about, there's no crack. There's no thought. Now it's pouring down rain. Pouring down rain. It's pouring, it's pouring down rain. Pouring down rain. And in those moments you enter in, in meditation where thought does cease, suddenly, so does time. Time just flies by. You know, when I've actually entered that state, you come to at various times, and you're not asleep, but you kind of come to at various times. But in the end, when you stop meditating and you look at the time, you're blown away by how much time passed. Like, you think about how long and excruciating it is to sit there in a waiting room 
It's only 15 minutes. When you're at home, 15 minutes flies by. Same amount of time, but you're sitting there in a waiting room, so it's 15 excruciating minutes. And then, you know, you're meditating, which is in theory no different from sitting in a waiting room. I'm going to sit here and do nothing. But because you manage to make thoughts cease or slow down, suddenly time speeds up. And maybe, you know, more accurately, it doesn't speed up. It just ceases to be recorded or measured. That's more what it is. It's not that time actually goes faster. It's just that time is no longer measured. There's no point of reference for it. You closed your eyes. You repeated some things to yourself. For me, it was always internal. I never liked to say things out loud. You You did some sort of mantra. For me, it was an internal mantra. And then, you know, you managed to enter that place. You know, you managed to enter that state. Lights are still flickering. And uh, time is no longer measured. So once you're out of that state and you open your eyes, oh, I didn't know 40 minutes went by. 40 minutes. And what you bring with you when you do that, and it doesn't have to be meditation, but I mean, there's a reason why meditation is emphasized so heavily, is that you have a new relationship to the torture. You know, you have a new relationship to the torture that goes on. It doesn't mean you won't be tortured. I'm tortured all the time. Some things just stress you out too much. I mean, there, there are some big quality of life things. I mean, like something happening to somebody you care about. Something bad happening to you. I mean, there's still a million things that are going to stress you out and cause you massive anxiety. And even if you can remove yourself for a split second and laugh at it, or be like, yeah, this is, this is a phenomenon. This is occurring. I'm experiencing this. Ha ha. You know, even if you can do that, it doesn't shake the practical reality that this is very stressful. But the fact that you can have any, you know, the fact that you can have a greater range of control at all is amazing. And that that greater range of control comes from an acceptance that I don't have that much control. And I got to stop trying to control so many things. So that's sort of a koan unto itself that more control comes from accepting that you have less control. And when you stop trying to control things so much at the micro level, you actually gain, you gain a greater sense of control. So more control comes from accepting that you have less control. How can you have more control and less control at the same time? Well, you can. You know, that's the koan. You don't need to complete that equation. You don't need to measure that. I mean, speaking of time too, time too, speaking of time too, 
You'll see this from people like, man, today is so long. I mean, I feel that some days. You know, I'm at work for usually at least 10 hours most days. And most days go by surprisingly quick. I would say the first eight hours typically go by very quick. And then sometimes the last couple hours, depending on what's going on, can crawl. Other times I wish I had more time. I don't want to be there for any longer, but I wish I had more time to get more done. Days go by so quick. Some days, though, they're just long. And it's interesting that you're experiencing a different reality because there are days where somebody else will, be like, will tell you, like, man, today is so long. And I'm like, you know, for me, it's gone by very quick. Like, we're in different states today. We're having different experiences. We might as well be in a different place. And then I'll be the one on a different day being like, man, today's long. But it's interesting that days can feel that way. And it's not always dependent on something obvious. Like obviously a day where there's nothing to do is going to feel long. But sometimes it's not really that obvious, like why it feels that way. You know, we know certain things can speed up time or make time like again i shouldn't say speed up time but like make time feel unmeasured which sort of makes it feel like it goes faster but it's like if you're spending time with somebody or talking to somebody you really like or have really good chemistry with time will just fly by whereas like two seconds of small talk with somebody you don't have any chemistry with can feel like a lifetime so people can change each other's perception of time. The chemistry you have with somebody can change that perception. I mean, it's what people say about lifelong friends and best friends and things where they cannot see each other for a long time and then just pick right back up where they left off. It's like all of that time that they weren't talking didn't get measured. And so it kind of just went by in the blink of an eye. And now that these people are talking again, it just flows again. And that's something you should pay attention to with people. Like, you know, if you really like somebody, it's awesome if, it, if time goes by slow. But a lot of the time, time goes by, it feels like it goes by slow when you're with somebody that's boring or you don't like or something. Um, but yeah, there, there just has that effect. Just same with when you genuinely enjoy something. When you're genuinely entertained by something, it can fly by. And in meditation, what I learned, what I learned, was that entering the meditative state, for lack of a better word, thought ceasing or decreasing to the point that it's a non-factor means that you're also no longer thinking about time. You're no longer having thoughts. And so time just sort of goes away. Your concept of it. And of course it comes back. 
And of course, if you're like me, or probably most people who meditate, what do you do? You see how long it, you see how long you were meditating. There's that little like sense of pride. Oh, I was meditating for an hour. Oh, I, I, I got my 20 minutes in. I have to meditate for 20 minutes today. If I don't meditate for 20 minutes every day, I'm such a fucking idiot. Such a fucking idiot. Oh my God. I suck at this. I suck. I suck. Got to meditate for 20 minutes every day or it doesn't count. I've got to do it. You know, I did that to myself. I would meditate for 15 minutes and like look at my clock and be like, I got to do it for five more minutes or it doesn't count. Ego. There is something to doing it for extended amounts of time, but why shouldn't you just do it and not check the time afterward? But you, it's magnetism. You feel compelled. I got to know how long. Not just be, It could be a day where you have truly nothing to do and it doesn't matter what time it is, but you still want to know. I got to check the measurements. Got to check the measurements, see how long that was. I got to know whether that was good or bad. I got to know whether I did good or bad. Did I get something out of it or not? Well, if I didn't meditate for 20 minutes, I, did, I couldn't have gotten anything out of it. When in reality, you could have meditated for five minutes, lost all sense of time, gotten up, not checked the clock, gone about your day. You know, maybe eventually you see the clock and then you think about, oh, that, that wasn't as long as I thought it was, or that was longer than I thought it was. But not forcing yourself to check. I got to check. I got to know. So in that way, if, if you don't check, you could get a lot more out of two minutes of meditation than you might out of 30 and never know it. But yeah, the torture never stops. I mean, I guess what, what started this whole thing two hours ago was just, um, you know, so much of Buddhist thinking is, you know, I, and I mean, you know, that's, that's, there's like the all is suffering thing. You know, that's, that's widely known, like uh, Buddhism is, is an acceptance that all is suffering. And I think that often gets misperceived. I see it in, you know, just a more direct way as like, oh, everything is, every at every moment, you could potentially be tortured. It's not that all is suffering. It's not that life is just nonstop suffering. Obviously, there's a lot of fun, interesting, wonderful things. Those can make you suffer too, sure. But it's not, you know, I think people misinterpret or don't understand the idea that all is suffering because for me it's more not that every moment is suffering no matter what it's just that every single thing you encounter every single thing you think every single thing you do can be utterly torturous and we often have so little control over our minds and our thoughts that we make those things we, we ensure that those things will be torturous you know it's like oh these ingredients you know have the the potential to harm you 
if mixed a certain way. And we tend to mix them that way. But you don't have to. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I mean, a big part of it is just like really staring at yourself head on. Like one of the best koans is just being like, I'm me and I'm supposed to feel a certain way about me one way or the other. I'm supposed to have an opinion about me. But what if I didn't have an opinion about me? Obviously, I want to hold myself to a certain standard. But what if I didn't have an opinion about me? What if I just was me? What if I was just me? What if I was just me? What if I was just me? Me. Me. You know, what about that, though? Like, what if I was just me? Instead, you know, what if I didn't have to have an opinion about me? Yeah, I think a little bit of pride is good. A little bit of shame is good. But what if, in general, you didn't have an opinion about yourself? Less torture. I shouldn't say less torture. I should just say the torture would be less severe. Because that's what I've been getting at. You know, by learning how to torture yourself. One, you learn more about what tortures you. What does actually torture you. And... It'll definitely make a lot of the torture, maybe not all the torture, but a lot of the torture, a lot of the torture, more bearable. Maybe more pleasurable at times. You might even find opportunities to enjoy the pleasure. Not pursue torture because of the pleasure, but if it's happening, you might learn to enjoy it a little bit. Oh, hey, this is really rattling me, and that's funny. That's funny. Oh, hey, that thing is really rattling me. I feel really rattled. Isn't that funny? Isn't that, isn't that great? I'm bothered by that. That's one way to enjoy it. I'm bothered by that. I can see, like, my base self reacting to that. Isn't that funny? You can find the fun in that. You know, I, I mentioned on here, I think fairly recently, but it's relevant here, just... I remember some years back, like, I used to have road rage. Not uncontrollable road rage where I would interact with other drivers. But I would just have this very private road rage where I'd say awful things. I'd uh, give the middle finger. I'd be really upset. If somebody did something on the road that was dangerous, I'd get really upset. There was one time where I was really out of line. This car... 
I was going down a road that's like a, it's a I think like a 40, 40 or 50 mile an hour road. And this car like saw me coming a ways away and they decided to pull out onto the road from a side street like right in front of my car and I had to slam on the brakes. And this is many years ago, probably like 2009, somewhere around there. And my girlfriend was with me at the time and I just flew into this rage and I just started tailgating them and like swerving back and forth and like nonstop honking my horn. I was a maniac. It was just some like middle-aged woman who just pulled out at the worst possible time. I mean, it pissed me off because it was, you know, I justified it because I was like, that was so fucking stupid and dangerous. I want to just throw a scare into her. Because really, yeah, she almost caused a, a bad accident with me. And it was so stupid and unnecessary, like what she did. Just really careless. And I just like tailgated this car for a while and just was like jerking the wheel back and forth. And I, 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 don't, I don't remember ever doing anything even remotely like this other than this one time. Just like jerking the wheel back and forth, like gritting my teeth. Just pure hate, anger, and just laying on my horn too, just wild. And I remember like the woman just finally pulled off and let me pass. Like she just like pulled off the road and I just kept going. And my girlfriend was like, yo, that was really crazy. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, that was, that was really fucking crazy. So that was the worst. I mean, that was like the only time I ever did anything like that, but just I would have this private road rage inside of my car and let it get to me and how you know I, I noticed that something had changed where some years back I would see people do things that are really dangerous or inconvenient and I would just go they're doing that and I still get kind of mad. Like, there's still... I, I can't stop myself from being bothered. I don't get mad. What I'll do is... What I've noticed that I do is I was like, Oh, I knew you were going to do that. Because what's interesting is that I've developed this intuition while driving. Where, like, I'll see a car and they might not be doing anything at that moment. But I'll think, I bet you're not going to use your signal. I bet you're going to turn abruptly without using your turn signal. They're not doing anything to telegraph that. And then they do. Like I said, like, I can see a car's face. Not the face of the driver. There's something beyond, like, the, the hard physical reality of the car. There's something about cars where, like, it's an aura, but it's like, I can almost visualize it. And I'll be like, you're going to do something. You're going to do something stupid or, or that troubles me somehow. And then they do it and I don't go, God damn it. God damn it. You know, I, I don't get mad. I go, I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. Sometimes I'll swear. I'll be like, I knew you'd do that, you motherfucker. Now, I, don't, I don't even say that anymore. You motherfucker, you motherfucker. But I, I just kind of, I get this sense for like oh that car is going to do something oh hey that car that's like way behind me they're probably going to cut me off 
And instead of getting mad when they do, I'm just kind of like, I knew it. Or even if it's not me predicting it, I, I just see somebody do something. Now it's more like I'm bothered by the fact that it's dangerous and I, and I worry when I drive about what's going to happen. But when I do see something happen, especially if nothing comes of it, someone just does something stupid, I just go, wow, you did that. Wow. Will you look at that? Will you look at that? Huh? Huh? It makes life a lot less torturous. There's still friction. Like, that's still a, a frictional... If that's even a word, frictional? That's still a... There's still friction to that. It's still torture. Driving is still torture. But I guess it's easier to endure the torture. And so, Buddhist thought to me is going head on into that in your own time. Not all the time, but still going head on into it. And the more you go head on into it, the less time it's going to take up. Like, the less you're actually going to be preoccupied by it. The less you're going to be influenced by it. Like, if there's something that you don't like about yourself, something you did that you don't like, just staring right into it is going to mean that Oh, hey, this is, this is going to influence me far less on a daily basis or long term. Because there's things about myself that I don't like or things I've done that I don't like. And I'll never like those things. I'll, I've accepted those things, but I'll never like those things. But in just staring right into it, it means this is less of an influence. Like this is, isn't present as often. I can't get rid of this, but in accepting that, like I, I don't have to deal with it as much. I don't have to think about it as much. Its subliminal influence is less present. I don't know. I seem to have power, but do I have internet? The lights are on, but what if I don't have internet? What if I don't have internet? It's not one thing, it's another thing. Well, I have lights, but I take those for granted. Except when I don't have lights. When the power's out, I just want lights. When the power goes back on and I have lights, I can't enjoy that. Now I want internet. The torture. And if I don't have internet, I'm going to wonder, when's it going to go back on? Oh, the lights are out. When are the lights going to go back on? Oh, the lights are back on. When's the internet going to go back on? The internet's back on. What am I going to look at? This is boring. I already looked at this. There's nothing for me to watch. So yeah, everything has the potential to torture you. But... That's how you kind of uh, gain a, a greater ability to endure the torture. And when, when you get better at enduring the torture, you'll have moments where you enjoy the torture. 
But most of the time, you don't really feel anything about the torture. And if you don't feel anything about the torture, is it actually torture? I don't know. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.